Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Ken Ralston, cameraman, concept artist, visual effects supervisor, as well as being a five-time Academy Award winner. Whether talking through his early days at Cascade Pictures to working on the original trilogy, Mr. Ralston is full of incredible stories. A living legend. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 62, Ken Ralston. Well, again, I'd love to always start at the beginning. Where did your love of movies and movie making initially come from? Well, it, uh, for some reason, I don't know why. I mean, I I know why now, but at the time, uh, I can remember going to like a local theater and seeing... uh, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. And so, and literally something happened. I just did not know what I was watching. I was flabbergasted. I just loved the whole thing. And it really stuck with me more than most things, especially I must've been seven or eight years old and I couldn't forget about it. And, uh, that kind of got me locked into it. And I started to lean towards, uh, things that I could recognize as being stop motion mainly so King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and things like that. And I didn't know who worked on them or any of that stuff in those days. I just thought they were really cool. And I can still remember seeing some movies and realizing, who's this guy's name I've seen on a couple of these things, this Ray Harryhausen guy. And so it started off really that crudely and started to look into it. Uh, when I was growing up, of course, there was nothing you couldn't find anything on anything except in famous monsters of film land. And that was barely any information at all, but it was the only thing we had growing up. So occasionally there'd be an article on Ray or Kong or something, and you'd see those key images showing puppets or whatever. And I just started to go, what, what is this world? And uh, I just, cause the thought whole sort of started and I just, for some reason just kept, paying attention to it and was concentrating on it, drawing things and trying to build little puppets. Not very <laughs> successfully, but I've tried. <laughs> and then how did you turn that into a career? What were your first steps professionally as a, as a visual effects member of the film? I, first of all, we, a friend of mine and myself used to do these little claymation stop motion things, eight millimeter, mm-hmm. uh, very crude. And we decided, I don't even remember why we decided to do this, but we took an entire year and we did a sort of a Walter Mitty idea of, we called it the bounds of imagination. It was an eight, going to be an eight millimeter film. And over the course of a year, we would come up with little vignettes to try lots of different types of visual effects that we were really excited about. So there was, you know, miniatures and stop motion and whatnot. And after a year, cut it all together. It was like 45 minutes long. And that, uh, it, this is a boring story, but somehow I wrote a crude letter to Forey Ackerman at Famous Monsters. He wrote back. I was very excited. We were going to go to the Acker Mansion. Yeah. So my folks took me and a, a couple of friends. And that's sort of how it started, because when we were there, we met uh, John Berg and Bill Hedge, a couple of guys that were working oh, at yeah. Cas- Cascade Pictures. And we showed the film, when we finally got that done, we showed this late millimeter movie to these guys, and they were floored. 
And we both ended up, based on that, working at Cascade for a summer doing some very stupid stop-motion film. <laughs> I don't think it ever even saw the light of day, but we did it. It was supposed to be educational. It was called Adventures in Underland. And uh, that's how it started, really. It's like, that's how we got to Cascade. And that's how we started to stumble into actually working semi-professionally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do love the... The Cascade Pictures is that initial DNA of what became Industrial Light and Magic. Of course, you and John Berg and Murin and Tippett and Rick Baker. And, Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it's funny. It's all these, at the time, kids that then went to Industrial Light and Magic and really then changed everything. How did you then hear about Star Wars and hear about uh, Industrial Light and Magic and get connected with the team there, the Dykstra and Edlund and, and everything going on over there? Well, it uh, I guess it was sort of simple in a weird way, which was, I forget how long I'd been at Cascade, maybe three years-ish or four, something like that. And because uh, I started when I was 17, of all things, <laughs> was a great learning ground. You know, there's a whole show just in Cascade, by the way. It's uh, When I think about those days, I just am floored because not only were we doing all this work and learning, but we were having a great time, too. <laughs> yeah. But at some point, and you'd have to ask Dennis this, because I don't know how he was contacted, but he got the Star Wars script. And I can still remember being in, I want to say it was John Berg's car, and I was in the back seat, and Dennis was in the front with John, and I guess we went to a restaurant at lunch or something. He had the script, and he was reading little portions out of it. And it was funny because those are it was the kind of script that amongst our little group. It was sort of a movie that we would have written or, or had written, and it was so full of effects we thought no one would ever make it. And that's sort of the first time I heard about it. Then Dennis was hired, and I was actually in the mountains at my folks' cabin, and I got a phone call from Dennis saying, hey, you want to be an assistant on this movie called Star Wars? And I went, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, what am I going to... Sure, why not? And yeah. uh, came back to L.A., and kind of started off assisting Dennis and just trying to help make sense out of the very rude and crude sort of technology that was there. I mean, the the first movie you worked as an assistant cameraman in the miniature and optical effects unit, which really was kind of that breeding ground with the Dijkstra Flex and, and the motion control in those first uh, early infancy. Right. What were your main roles during that? But then also, how did you learn with that group to use the Dijkstra Flex and use the motion control to tell this story? Well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> the uh, it, it was, I mean, it was a great system, obviously. But getting into it because we all were very well educated in uh, all the other technologies, you know, uh, ships on wires and blowing up miniatures, stop motion, and like the Dijkstra Flex sort of incorporated ideas of that, you know, except it was actually moving during exposure. I guess that was its main thing. It could move during the exposure and remember what it had done most the time and uh most of the camera moves in the first film weren't all that elaborate but it was still hard to get used to using that system and it was a lot more complicated when we ended up on empire just because the uh, shot requirements were more complicated but what you have to learn to do is you have to create record program each individual axis of let's say a uh, tie ship one at a time so you can't just figure out and do it all in one fell swoop, you figure, well, I'm going to move from point A to point B. It's got to be that small at the start of the shot and exit. So you do the track down the, the track 
That's your first axis. Mm -hmm. You back it up and you just start to try to pile on each individual thing in a very counterintuitive kind of way. But after a long time doing it, I sort of just got very adept at it and it became sort of second nature, mainly when we got up to Maroon. But yeah, it was it was complicated. And of course, in those days, it didn't always work great. So you'd lose information or have to start over. But that's sort of typical. Yeah, I mean, then your work in this department really then got the attention of, of George and how you were able to move the camera dynamically and really uh, make interesting shots out of these these models. And that moved into the Return of the Jedi, especially with probably some of still the most complex visual effects work that, that was put to film, especially that end space battle. What lessons did you learn mm-hmm. from, from Star Wars and Empire that you then brought into the visual effects work of Jedi? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. It's complicated. I, I guess just because you do something for so long, it becomes easier to get the results you always wanted to get, but couldn't when you first started, just because it was just too difficult. So I felt more confident in designing shots along, of course, with George and everybody else right. and Joe Johnston and all those guys that, you know, kind of pushed the limits and were more fun. I mean, that to me was my basic thing. It's like, what's fun here? Let's have a good time instead of like, what's the most complicated shot I can do, even though some of them turned out to be that. (laughs) And uh, you just, uh, you kind of go into it that way. Some of the lessons, I guess, are what you can get away with, Mm -hmm. what you can uh, not worry about, and the audience won't see the little tiny nuances, the little goofs or whatever, and move on. Because if you choreograph your shot correctly, and you are in control of the audience's eye and the subject matter, Sometimes little things, You first of all, we didn't have time to fix everything. Uh-huh. And you knew, and I learned this from George mainly, he could look at a shot uh, as it was coming together, and if you were worried about something, he might just say, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. The audience is looking over right. here. And of course they were. They had no choice. I mean, it was like, oh, okay, especially with quick cuts, whatever was mm-hmm. going on. Certainly not the uh, pixel fucking that occurs now with digital, but you did learn well, actually, it was a very interesting lesson for me, which was human perception of movement and just anything like that. And that, you know, probably leads to that story you've heard a hundred times, but the potatoes and the asteroid field scene. And it's just things that I would do sort of playing with that idea. Yeah. And uh, it was it was fun, first of all, to do right. and stupid. Right. And that was our first motivation. And then also learn something at the same time. And it was also exciting to work with George and, and feel you know, you had your chops and you knew how to use the system well enough that you could sort of challenge yourself, go out there and try to do something that hadn't been seen before. I love it. And I'm, of course, the potato story and the tennis shoe and the yogurt container and all these things that really lend to this (laughs) mythos. Uh, And one of the things that really stands out to me about Return of the Jedi, especially the space battle, are these early previs things that you put together before there was previs, really, in the videomatics. Uh, Someone uploaded them to YouTube (laughs) and they're uh, (laughs) incredible still. Like, they're, they're just so fun to watch. Can you walk me through a little bit of how you guys put that together and maybe explain to the audience what the videomatic really was well i'm assuming you're i'm assuming you're talking about the one where we're doing the sound effects yes. with our mouths on it <laughs> using a microphone yes. <laughs> well first of all yeah we wanted to do something george was curious to get something to start playing with some editing ideas and we really i know if i can remember right it was really just models on sticks mm-hmm. essentially or maybe some of the existing things that we had and uh you know, it's funny because I, I haven't seen that for so long, but just trying to put something together very fast so he could slap stuff together. First of all, 
to get an idea of the shots he really wanted. So we didn't waste time. I mean, time was so critical. And when we were, you know, it's like all movies. There's never enough time. And so we just started to put it together. And then we, I thought it would be funny to do, you know, before we sent it, cut it together in our own crude way and then add the effects <laughs> ourselves. And uh, we just did it for fun. I guess George really loved it because it was so silly. And I guess what I'm really getting at is when I think back at those things, certainly a lot harder to do now. But that's the kind of spirit that was there at, at ILM for forever is that kind of creative fun. And despite how hard everything was, and believe me, our hours were nuts and it could be really brutal, but we were still crazy enough to have a good time and, and try to you know keep each day being something new and something to look forward to. From the night shoots of the, the camera department to then after Star Wars, what I love is seeing you and the rest of that Industrial Light and Magic crew then go off and, and really change how movies are made in a bunch of different films. And one of the things that really stands out to me in your career is your work with Zemeckis especially yeah. and constantly pushing those boundaries through each of the movies. I'd love to just talk a little bit because the motion control really does then lend itself pretty well to the Zemeckis movies, especially early on with live action motion control and especially Roger Rabbit. What was it like first starting to work with, with Bob Zemeckis, but then also kind of evolving this process over time? I mean, my first meeting with Bob was when he was going to direct Cocoon and I was in there, and he already had a lot of cool ideas. I think from what Bob told us later, I guess there was issues with romancing the stone at 20th Century Fox. So he had to go reshoot a bunch of stuff, apparently. And because of that, they hired Ron Howard. I'm sure they hired him because of Splash, you know, water. And uh, plus, it's a good movie. Let's, let's not you know go beyond that. And so I was on Cocoon, and then while I was on Cocoon, with Ron, Back to the Future started. And when I got the script, there was a whole sequence of uh, the DeLorean at an atomic bomb testing site in Nevada where they were going to drop the bomb right when the DeLorean was going to be right underneath it. And that's how he got back. And I was sort of thinking stupidly that, well, there's probably a lot of miniatures there. And I could, because I'm doing a lot of other types of work on Cocoon, I, wonder, I bet I can do both at the same time. <laughs> and uh, so I did somehow. And uh, then the script changed tremendously. And the effects that were required were much more different. But I can't believe I had a year where I worked on both Cocoon and Back to the Future. And I can't explain it. You know, certain people, even like with Ron, uh, Bob and I just hit it off. We, we just, uh, we were trying. It was just like, it just sort of happened. We got along great. And Back to the Future was a real testing ground. We didn't realize it at the time, but fighting our way through that, and then it becomes a colossal hit, and that gives Bob freedom, and then it just sort of, he trusted me, I trusted him, and it just kept evolving, and of course, being Bob, he didn't, what I liked about Bob was, he wasn't making movies to do visual effects work that were cool. He was doing really cool movies, and then he used visual effects to tell the story, and because he wasn't going to do anything that had been done before, unless it was required for the film, then you know, he just kept pushing the limits and what he was asking for. And the variety of work we did together was kind of insane, but it was fantastic. Very complicated working for him. Yeah. But uh, I love that kind of challenge. And I like walking into each project with him where it's a totally different ask. You know, it's like, okay, this time, I still remember one conversation on the phone where I thought we might be doing a movie, which I still wish we had been doing it on Tesla that Bob wanted to do. And, 
I got a phone call and he goes, what would, how did he phrase this? Something like, how would you do a scene where a woman falls down a flight of stairs and her head's turned to 180 degrees around? It was like, well, I guess we're not doing either. And he's also talking about doing Houdini. So either one, I was sort of going, well, I guess it's neither one of those movies. <laughs> so you just never knew what was going to come at you. And then off you go to try to solve all these artistic and uh, technical challenges, which was great, which was great. Yeah, and of course, then led to Academy Award wins, what you just described, Death Becomes Her and Forrest Gump uh, as well. What stands out to me, too, is for better or for worse, with the motion capture elements of his later films with like Beowulf and Polar Express were groundbreaking at the time and have really pushed to motion capture as a tool rather than the entire film itself. Um, Where do you see kind of the next evolution moving forward? Yeah, that's always a, it's always a tough question because everything is so uh, project oriented and it, it's changing, you know, games uses a lot of the same technology. Uh, there's so much now that's on streaming, but it's all, not all, but a great deal of it is still storytelling using visual effects and a lot of them. I, all I, I ever hope for is the same thing I always hope for is you can almost do anything. It doesn't mean you should do it, but you can almost do anything. And it really is up to storytelling, script writing, directors. It's really up to a, a level of your taste and what you do with this technology. You can make a big pile of crap or you can do a beautiful diamond and it can be anything in between. And since the technology is, is rampant now, I just hope that a lot of the projects, and a lot of them are, of course, are really worthwhile projects and that's just not being wasted on nonsense. Although, keeps a lot of people working, including me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your your career has been incredible and throughout the entirety of it is has been groundbreaking over and over and over again. Is there anything as you look back from the Cascade days to now and, and have especially fond memories of or any shot in particular that might have been the most challenging or, or one of the most exciting to end up putting together? You know, I don't really have particular shots. I always was trying to get something in each movie that was better than some of the other shots in the same movie, because you don't always have a choice. You know, some things happen and you run out of time and I can still watch films now and go, Ugh, <laughs> when something <laughs> pops up that I wish had been better. But it's sort of experiences on movies. I've been so lucky with the people I've worked with and the projects I've had where I have a lot of them. So I can't go, you know, what was the best film I ever worked on? <laughs> I really don't have that. I have a couple or some of the worst, but I won't mention those right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> By far. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed working on Forrest Gump a lot. The challenges were unique. The, the whole experience was a, a really special experience. Death Becomes Her, I really enjoyed only because it was so damn hard. And also, you got to remember how lucky are some of us to get to work with some of these great actors that I've been able to work with. It's like I look back at those things going, God, really? Meryl Streep? <laughs> okay. All right. That was not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can wa- and you get to watch them do their craft, right. and that's always fun. Uh, let's see. I, when I was at Sony, I think by far the best project I worked on was Alice in Wonderland that yeah. Tim Burton directed. And uh, that was a creative uh, blast for me. I mean, he gave me so much leeway on that, and it was so hard. But it was great. It was one of the better projects uh, at Sony that I had been on and really had a great time with him. And back at ILM, well, 
probably most of Bob's movies are, are ones, and also Cocoon was a great one to work on with Ron. And even some of the Star Treks were fun, yeah. crazy, silly fun. Yeah. I was about to say, uh, the one of the things that really stands out to me is not only Wrath of Khan being one of the first elements of intensive CG in a movie, but also some of your miniatures and intro shots and, and like what stands out to me is the SETI eel. Incredible stuff. Just still still <laughs> so cool and so like grody. Uh, can we talk just a little bit about that maybe and, and working in that Star Trek universe? Because not only did you add your own impact to Star Wars, but some of the work that you did in those Star Trek movies really has defined what we think of as Star Trek now. Uh, well, it, uh, it was an interesting experience because I was a fan of the show. Mm-hmm. The first show, the original <laughs> show. <laughs> And so to be asked to work on it and got on uh, Rathacon, luckily, that's still such a fun one to watch. And uh, Nicholas Meyer was the director. And I really hardly ever worked with Nick the way he worked. I was working with some of the producers and uh, people like that to get the shots done. And I guess I always liked shows where people just kind of let me have my reign and do what I need to do and stay out of my way. And then I can do what's most efficient and best for the show. Sometimes when you get too many meddlers, things can have a tendency to fall apart. And so I had a really great time on that with the cloud tank and everything. It was nuts, but it was a lot of fun. And our goal really was, after the first movie was technically was amazing, but it was a bore. And they kept talking about when the first film, the second one, the Rathacon started, they wanted to try to capture more of that fun, original TV Star Trek feel to it. Right. And so that's what we tried to do. We tried to go a little more showmanshipy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, have some more fun with the shots and yeah. and have, you know, have a good time. And then the other one, like uh, the search for Spock, it was great to work with Leonard as a director. It was something yeah. different. And uh, each one asked different things. It also gave me opportunities to set up shots, do lighting on shots, do weird stuff like the cloud tank or the SETI eel. I designed the SETI eel, built it and operated yeah. and shot it. So and luckily, if you could do those any of these jobs, you were given an opportunity at ILM to do it. And so you had it was a lot of fun to be able to have that variety to, you know, tap into and play with. That is one thing that we didn't touch on, and we don't have to talk about it too much. But not only were you visual effects and cameraman and, and working your way up through ILM during all that time, but you're also a concept artist. And, and some of your, like, uh, still in my mind, there's an image that you drew of the Emperor, a uh, concept for the Emperor that just stands out to me as being so stark and so interesting and, and some of the monsters that you helped design <laughs> just a, a little bit. Like, what did you bring in terms of trying to design, especially, let's say, for Star Wars, and then how did that kind of impact you then photographing it and turning it into a, a an actual physical thing? Uh, well, like with a bunch of us, cascaders i mean we tried to do it we were excited by stop motion mainly right. so in, a, in the ideal world you would design a puppet or and then sculpt it build it cast it do the whole thing right. so it was just fun learning how to i mean i always was able to draw a little bit and like i still doodle all the time now to keep busy uh-huh. and uh then being able to sculpt something and and i we learned a lot of that way before or i did before ILM, but using different, you know, clays, things like that. What's great in in an environment like ILM or Cascade, you're surrounded by people that are introducing you to new materials, things to try, something to try over here, use this, and room to be innovative. So it was really cool to be able to design something. It was like the baby dragon in Dragon Slayer. Design it, sculpt the maquette, then build the full-size one, and then operate it in London. And it, it makes it 
I guess for my own artistic ego, it makes it better because you have more control over it, and it's all yours. Now, it really isn't all yours, but a great deal of it is in certain instances. And it does, uh, it, it's more fun to shoot things like that and plan and have it incorporated into the, the movie. Sometimes you get on things, you have almost nothing to say about any of it. You still give it your best shot and do your best work, but you have more control over different aspects of it. Well, uh, Mr. Ralston, thank you for taking the time and talking to me and answering all my <laughs> uh, nerdy questions. And I really appreciate uh, all the work you've done, obviously, and well, thanks. Uh, all the groundbreaking that you've done. <laughs> Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for a very good interview. Ralston, again, thank you for being on the show and for all you've done for visual effects and movie making over the years. I hope you all had a great Star Wars day with that incredible Clone Wars finale and the exciting start to the Mando documentary series. And as always, it is so appreciated if you can leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps so much, somehow. But until next time, stay tuned and may the Force be with you.